0: Hello and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee you that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, I am honored to be joined in the studio by Mr. Blair Garner. Mr. Garner is a Texas native who has been a radio personality since he was a teenager. Working in the radio business through college, his career took him to legendary stations in Washington, D.C., New York City, Houston, and Los Angeles. In the 1990s, Mr. Garner launched After Midnight, a syndicated late-night country radio show that grew to over 100 affiliates in its first year alone. He moved to morning radio with America's Morning Show for three years before returning to late night radio with the Blair Garner Show. His most recent project is off radio. Mr. Garner is building the Mule House in Columbia, Tennessee, which is going to be a world-class music venue, which will feature country music stars playing their songs to an intimate crowd with Blair doing what he does best, conducting the interviews. Larry Garner, welcome to History's Hook. I want to thank you very much,
1: Tom. It's an honor to be here, and uh, I'm so excited for our local radio station to have a show like yours and to allow you know the people of the community to speak about what they are most passionate about and. For you to offer this more exciting way, I think, of understanding the history of
0: our town. It's incredible. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for being on the show. So, having you as a guest today, I will admit, is a little off the beaten path for History's Hook. This is a show (laughs) that typically talks about people and events of the past. I've interviewed military veterans and civil rights leaders who have talked about their life experiences. But in truth, most of our subjects are long dead. Uh, But if we're doing this show, In the manner in which I hope to, which is to connect local events and happenings to the big picture, you certainly fit the bill. You've had a really quite an amazing career and life. Uh, You're still doing it. You have had the opportunity to talk to the who's who of country music. Millions have listened to your voice over your 30-year career. Do you consider your success in life as something entirely of your own making?
1: No, I don't. Uh, I credit so much, first of all, to my parents. Uh, My mother and father, Gary and Mary Ellen Garner in Canyon, Texas, raised their children to believe that they could do anything they chose. My mother especially. She always said that whatever the odds are against you in a given situation, they certainly don't apply to you. And the reason she said that is there's something special about you that will see it through. You will overcome through your dedicated effort. That coupled with what I say is my father's primary lesson in life is that if you're going to make a mistake, make it as big and as loud and as hairy as you possibly can. Because if you don't commit yourself to something, you will never know what it feels like to be victorious. I mean, think about Wayne, Wayne Gretzky. He's the guy that said you will miss a hundred percent of the shots that you never take. And I, I don't want to be that person who years from now looks back and thinks, what if I'd done that? And we recently launched a YouTube series. It's called From Dream to Reality, The Making of the Mule House. And the reason we chose to do that is it truly is a dream. And especially if you look at the current environment that live event spaces, you know, independent venues find themselves in, there are a lot of reasons to think that, man, this is the worst possible time to do something like that. But again, the odds don't apply because if you are willing to look for the opening, if you are willing to try to clear the, you know, all of the confusion, all of the smoke that may be in the way, there is always that open window. But that's the difference. And you just have to forge on. You have to, to look because those opportunities are there through disruption, through chaos. All of that provides
0: opportunities. and I love the optimism, but risk is scary, especially now.
1: It would be more risky to not do it. It would be more risky to think of condemning myself to sitting in you know my living room one day and thinking, golly, man, I wish we had gotten that church. I wish that we had moved forward with that dream. And that to me is far scarier. I, I, you know, the odds are the odds. And I know that the way that Columbia, this community, l- let me back up for a second. That That is perhaps the singular most important word in my vocabulary, community. I left my hometown in Texas in 1984, 86, I guess it was. And I wanted to be the big guy. I wanted to move and, and work in New York City for ABC. I wanted to go to L.A. and, and work there for you know, however long I could. I wanted to start my own nationally syndicated company. And I did that, and I loved it. And, and at the time in my life, that was probably the right thing for me to do, to be the young single guy in New York and then the same thing out in L.A., But what I didn't realize when I left Canyon, Texas in 86, what I didn't realize that I was leaving behind was one of the most integral parts of my life. And it's one of the most integral parts of what makes Columbia this rich, vibrant town that's seeing a renaissance like none other. And that word is community. And it wasn't until I really became friends. I credit so much of my love with Columbia to Kim uh, Hayes and Joel Friedel over at West 7th Company when i walked through those doors and i saw the pictures that represent the history of this town and then i got to know kim and and joel and through them a lot of other you know folks in town that is where i i I i recall specifically canoeing down the duck river with my family and kim and joel and some other friends of ours and it was in that moment that i realized i feel like i'm a part of something here and, and that was when that, that whole idea of community, it's like, boom, I've been missing this, you know, for
0: so long in my life. But it was something that you had in Canyon, Texas.
1: Oh, absolutely. And it's something compare, that I did.
0: Compare the two towns.
1: What? You know what? They're very much alike. But I'll say that Columbia is, I, I, I lovingly refer to Columbia as my new hometown. I feel more rooted and more a piece of this community, I think, than ever before. And when we started this idea of launching the Mule House, at first it was, you know, our family. It was, we were doing, it's our project. But I would say that when the word began to filter out about what we were doing, it became glaringly apparent to us that, no, this is not our project. This is Columbia's project. This is for every person that lives in Columbia, in Murray County, and the surrounding areas. We all share this. We are just the ones who are kind of heralding the, you know, ushering through the the process of bringing it to reality.
0: I think people feel it keenly in a town the size of Columbia that when a business or an enterprise like yours opens up, it it has a marked effect on the people here. It improves their life quality here. uh, I've I've heard nothing but positive.
1: And there's so many folks like, you know, Red 7 next door. Uh, I think about Tallgrass Meats, Casey over there. I think about All of these, you know, Wandi's, what a great Thai restaurant. Who would have thought that someone whose life had been dedicated to installing wood floors, you know, could kind of reinvent themselves and create a local business for our community here in town. But the people respond. They wrap themselves around it. Unlike, I believe, the majority of communities that might do it. Columbia, there's something
0: remarkably special about this town. So you credit your parents with helping you on your path. Yeah. The values that they instilled in you do yep. you have siblings i do i have two brothers and we were all raised to say please
1: thank you excuse me yes sir yes ma'am and when i became a father myself in 2003 november 26 2003 my twins braxton and ava were born i realized i guess probably when they are around two and a half to three that some of the decisions that were being made by other parents with their own children was beginning to have an impact on mine. I lived in Calabasas, California, just on the outskirts of uh, Los Angeles, and I was neighbors to Justin Bieber and uh, the Kardashians in the area. Uh, This was when uh, Brittany went at that car with the umbrella and had shaved her head. I was witness to these things. And specifically, I recall one late afternoon, we, we lived up on a on a hill. It was a gated community. And I was always really careful about driving because the posted speed limit was 25. It was the, the late afternoon, the sun beating down. And as I drove up the the hill toward our house, I could barely see. And I was very, you know, careful to keep it on 25, if not below. And as I did that, there were two boys, maybe 14, 16, something like that, and man, I locked it down as soon as I saw those shadows in the middle of the road, right? Now, if, if it were me in my hometown of Texas and I were in the street, I would have very quickly made every effort I could to wave and apologize and then get out of the way. But what these two guys did, they just slowed down and they just stared me in the eye while they walked as slowly as they possibly could because they knew that I had to wait on them. And it was in that moment that I realized, you know what, this is not real. This is not an environment to raise my kids where I was raised to say please and thank you and excuse me, all that. So I I had to get out of there. And we elected to move to Nashville. Initially, we moved to Forest Hills and um, then to Franklin. And even then, I I don't think I really ever felt the same kind of connection, the same kind of roots that I feel until we moved here six years ago. So... Not really sure what question I just answered. <laughs> but, you know, really and truly, those, those life lessons, I, I aim to uh, educate my kids on that. There's a family mantra that as soon as the kids were born, um, I always began to tell them that you can do anything in this life that you choose as long as you do two things. And I think this is true for all of us. The two things that will help you accomplish whatever it is, you know, make your dream a reality, is to work hard and to be kind. Those two simple thoughts can propel you, and they will help you overcome the odds, regardless of what they are.
0: Are your parents still living? Uh,
1: Unfortunately, my mom died in 94, but I was fortunate that she got to see me launch my uh, syndication company in in late 93, and she died in, in July of 94. That was a really... Tough thing for me because mom was the ultimate cheerleader. She was the one who would call in the middle of a show and, uh, invariably she'd say, is this the world's greatest DJ? You know, she's <laughs> always in leaving little notes around. Like, I'm so proud of you. You're so, um, gifted and and I, I couldn't be more proud to be
0: your mother i still have those notes you have a brother brian yeah brian He's Who was the, able to find a little bit of information about it. he's also
1: impressive you know i'm very fortunate with my my brother brian he is the one i jokingly say that i got the looks which i mean let's be honest <laughs> no. <laughs> no. but brian he is brian is the editor-in-chief of black's law and he had two books that he wrote with uh, Justice Scalia. Scalia was one of his dearest friends. Uh, he was also close with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And uh, Justice, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts also was, uh, you know, a student of my brothers. He would, he would Chief Justice Roberts paid to come to a lecture by my brother. Ryan is a big proponent of ridding the world of legalese. He, he believes that if laymen such as you and I can't fully understand um, a contract, then it's not a good contract. Which and, he's
0: taken some heat about yeah, in he has. the legal community. But
1: you know what, though? Here's the deal. He is making uh, law accessible. And I remember one of his first contracts that he did, he he was on retainer with General Motors, and, and the, it was the Texas Apartment Association, I think, that they had a 14-page uh, lease document that they sent to Brian, and he went through it and made certain that all of the legal intent is still there but completely, you know, accessible to the layperson, and he took that 14-page 14 14 document and reduced it, I think, to like two, maybe two-and-a-half pages. So Brian initially, when he was in high school, Uh, he would stay up in his room. Now, I was out working on cars in the garage because I'm a car fanatic, but Brian was up in his bedroom, and he was uh, reading dictionaries. And at one point, he made it a personal challenge. He would write on these little index cards five different words that he would commit himself to learning that day. And he later expanded upon that to also include how those words were used within the context of a sentence, when he went into law school at the University of Texas in the, uh, gosh, I guess this would have been the 80s, he began doing the same thing with legal terms. He would write down a, a, a legal word, you know, stare decisis, whatever it is, but then he would he would define it and we also use it within context to show how it is utilized within you know the legal world. So when he graduated from college or from uh, law school, he went to one of his most respected professors and he said, you know, I've got this huge catacard, uh, catalog rather, of, of these index cards that I've written showing usage. Do you think there would be any interest in maybe doing a book or something like that? And the law professor said, well, you know what, you never really know. A couple of the biggest uh, publishers, a little brown, Oxford, and uh, you should go ahead and send them a copy and just see what they think. So he prepared a little five-page, you know, example of what that would be like. And they both said they wanted to publish it. Um, It was the first time that they had ever paid a significant advance on some kind of a a reference book. And ultimately, it started Brian's career. He only practiced for for one year in Dallas. By the time that year was up... And he was not in the best, I mean, the, 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 I don't know if you've, the, the first year for, um, so many works at a law firm can often be really challenging. He had a young girl at that time and, you know, he was, had to be, uh, he had to be there before the boss got there. He had to stay until after the boss had left. We've all played those politics, but he was missing these moments with his young daughter and the book really took off. You know, again, defying the odds, just as Mom had said, and uh, committing himself to it like that as well, it became. I think it's already in its. I don't know. It's many editions in now, but that that was the Dictionary of Modern Legal Usage, where he showed how these books are are used, and then he wrote Elements of Legal Style based on Strunk and White, and and on and on. He is now the world's most recognized authority on legal writing. In fact. Uh, at the confirmation hearings for several of the different uh, justices over the last couple of years, I remember John Cornyn there on C-SPAN holding up my brother's book, talking to I don't know if it was Gorsuch or or who, but referencing Brian by name, and then looking there on C-SPAN and seeing my brother in the in the area in the in the back there, you know, and in- incredible, just amazing, A little surreal.
0: And when I read his bio and after I had spent time reading your biography as well my immediate thought was gosh who are their parents they did this tremendous job with these two individuals that have made giant strides in their fields of choice well we're very
1: fortunate and you know I, I miss my mom so much I respect my father incredibly dad is is 90 years old as of this past August mm-hmm. and he's still living back in Texas he moved up to Amarillo. Um, but, you know, he, when he recently celebrated his 90th birthday, he, he's been a public teacher since, you know, he graduated from from college at Texas Tech University. And he was started in Lubbock, Texas. Then he went on to Southern California. He was the head of bands for USC, the marching band there. And I even have his Rose Bowl watch from 1963 when they were in the parade, or maybe he's earlier than that. But, you know, th- my dad has affected uh, so many people who music in schools – which is actually one of the main things. I'm very proud to be part of the CMA foundation. We support music in schools and have given over, I think $28 million since 11 years ago that we began. Um, But that has always been kind of that refuge for a kid who may not have the best home life. If they, they don't feel that they have something good at home, they could go to school and they could be involved in a music program. They could immerse themselves in that. And, you know, he, when, when my dad turned 90, there were literally, you know, hundreds and and hundreds of people. We had to set up a zoom birthday party for him because, you know, here we are in the middle of this crisis and dad being 90, you don't want to have him out in the, uh, the public there. So they, they did a drive by parade there at his house and zoom calls from all over the, the world. In fact, and, you know, you see people crying because they're so affected by dad and, and isn't that just remarkable. I'm so proud of him. It is. That, that's amazing.
0: It's absolutely amazing. Let, let's talk about radio for a moment. You you got into the business from the time you were very young, still, still a <laughs> teenager. What drew you to it? Well, the same
1: thing that led me to um, everything. I mean, the, the thing that led me to radio is the thing that led me to the mule house. It is the thing that led me to uh, create my own syndication company back in 93. And believe it or not, it's cars.
0: <laughs> explain that.
1: All right. I was 11 years old and I already knew that man I was crazy for old cars and I I would look through Hemming's Motor News or you know before we had the internet and you could just scour and I'd look at car parts. I was so committed to you know I'm telling my dad at 11 years old that I wanted to buy a car. He's like, "You're not going to buy a car." I said, "No, I want to buy a car." And I'd push and I'd push and I'd push. And at one point I was so rejected or so dejected rather that, you know, dad didn't embrace this. Mom was all about it. She, you know, she'd support whatever it was that we wanted to do. Um, but he said, no, you're not going to do that. So I started to try and build one. And, you know, 11 years old, the most logical place to start building your own car out of wood would be the glove box door. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> as far as I ever got. But that and, and by the time that I said, well, all right, I'm going to collect tub caps. And I had probably 700, 800 hubcaps hanging on the garage walls. That's when my dad finally threw in in the towel and said, okay, you can go get a car. (laughs) So I had made money collecting, uh, you know, mowing lawns. I had 50 bucks, bought a 64 Dodge from JW Pinkett in Amarillo, Texas. (laughs) It never ran. Well, it did run one time, and all I heard was the rod knocking, and that's it. Um, But that was the beginning of my love affair with cars. When I was... 16 there was a fellow that lived down the street from us named jack aldridge he owned the local radio station khbj and khbq in canyon and he had a 57 uh thunderbird it was that beautiful teal blue teal uh, you know the color i'm talking about mm-hmm. with a white porthole uh hard top. and i had seen it and at uh, this time i i had also started my own uh company. I actually had incorporated a car detailing company before it was ever even a thing. And I was making money. I had four college kids working for me as a high school student. And I'd go home from school. Mom would leave a note on the bar saying, Hey, you know, uh, they need you to go pick up four cars at the Ford dealership or whatever and bring them back. And then our guys would detail, I was kind of the front man running interference, right? Sure. So I'm doing this and I, I was making my own money. Jack had this beautiful 57 Thunderbird. I was down the street, and I saw the car, and I started talking to him about it. And I wanted so much for him to sell it to me, but he refused. So we had a nice conversation. And the next day, I went home. And among those notes that my mom had taken saying, you need to go to the Ford dealership, all this kind of stuff, there was one note that said, you need to go see Jack Aldridge at the the radio station. And I thought, terrific, he's going to sell the car. So I went and I got my checkbook. I'm all excited. I walked through the door. He said, yeah, come on in. He brings me in to a room where there are microphones and a tape machine and all this kind of stuff. And I said, Jack, I'm so excited. You decided to sell the car. And he goes, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, you're going to sell the car, right? And he goes, oh, no, no, no. He said, I was listening to you speak yesterday. I think you have a good voice, and you should try and be in radio. I'm like, what? He handed me a piece of paper, and on it was the um, – the verbiage for a Mexican food restaurant um, ad, and he said, "Read this." And he hit play and record on the on the tape machine, and I read it. He said, "Hold on a second. and he goes to another room and he brings back this other guy. I would later find out it was the program director, and he said, "This is the kid I was telling you about. Listen to this." And so they they looked at each other and they said, "Would you like to try and do a show on the weekends?" I said, "Well, you know, I don't know." He said, "You you know, I'll I'll pay you." And that was when the light bulb went off, right? Because it meant car parts. So I did it. And it was funny. I was I was kind of bullied as a kid in high school, and I went to school on that Monday following this little one hour or this little one shift that I had done on a sen- Sunday afternoon. And you know, the the kids that uh, had kind of picked on me were like, "Hey man, uh, I, heard, I heard you on the radio yesterday. It's kind of cool." I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm a little pumped up, right? Right. They offered me a full time job, seven to midnight, and I got six hundred dollars a month. And to me. That meant car payments, man. So I'm down with that. And I went and bought a, a used Corvette and a used Audi. And that was my golden ticket. From that moment on, I had always worked hard because I wanted to buy more cars. Same thing when I started my syndication companies, like the, the habit. Once you get that monkey on your back, you can't get it off. And when we came to Columbia, I had, uh, I guess at that point, we had 10, 12 cars, something like that. And I needed a place to keep them. I wanted to buy a building instead of paying rent on storage, and I found this old building on South Main, bought it, thought, this is terrific, 6,000-square-foot building. I'm going to put cars in here. It's all good. Brought an architect over. He looked at it. And he said, you're not going to put one car in here. I said, what are you talking about? I said, 6,000 square feet. And he goes, no, 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 no. Look at these floors. This thing was built in the 30s. There is no possible way you can even put one car on a wooden-floor building. I'm like... Well, I own this building now. What am I going to do? <laughs> and it was Mike Mefford at Mefford Motors over here. He jokingly said, Why don't you do your radio show from there? And I thought, I'm not going to do my radio show. But what he did was he planted a seed. And the seed was, OK, what if I did a show? What would that be like? What is my favorite thing in my job? And that's interviewing. And then that led to the idea well, maybe we put on events where we interview these these celebrities in front of people and give them a chance to play. Kind of floated the idea around. What was really interesting is, you know, my family will tell you, I am, um, I, I am an, I, I, an idea machine. And unfortunately, sometimes it's difficult to kind of whittle them all down. But this idea had legs. It stuck with me. And over the course of the next eight months or so, we really started drilling down into it, floating the idea with some people in the industry, wondering whether or not the artist would actually do it. And yeah, it did have legs and it did maintain my interest. And so we started with that building. Once we got into the whole business plan of what that would be like, we had a 200 cap, 200 total people we'd be able to uh, accommodate as guests. And that had a direct impact on on the bottom line. And we thought we need to find a larger place. And I often say there's a divine hand guiding this whole thing. And that is what led us to the church uh the former first baptist church at eighth and south high so again it's all because of cars (laughs) and then the most i mean i know it's a very circuitous path to get there but there we are it is
0: so your radio career sort of takes off over time Mm -hmm. who's the very first person that you interviewed that made you more than a little nervous well garth
1: garth Reba, um, Brooks and Dunn, in the early days, yeah, I I was extremely intimidated. And they are so, I, I want everyone to know, those names that I just mentioned, Garth and Reba and Kix and Ronnie, and I can go on, Keith Urban, same way. The way that you would want to believe that they are is exactly the way that they are. You know, a lot of people will say don't meet your heroes because they may not live up to your expectations. Those people are the finest, kindest, nicest, most warm, unassuming people. Garth has this way of just completely melting any kind of discomfort you may feel. And thanks to people like that, and then, you know, any number of other artists who have also been gracious enough to uh, join me on the show, I came to realize they're no different than you and I are, Tom, you know. The the human experience is the same. They still have loss. They still have fear. They still have hope. They have mentors. They understand what success tastes like. They understand what it means to persevere over difficult times and challenges. So we're all much more the same. It goes
0: back to how we started this. It goes back to the small things like manners, Mm -hmm. caring and listening about people. That's right. That brings success. Yeah. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Blair Garner. We'll be right back. On History's Hook. Three, two, one. Welcome back to History's Hook. We return to our conversation with Radio Celebrity Slub. <laughs> well, you know why you stumbled? Because you shouldn't use that word on me. I'm not a celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, no, we're going to keep it. Ready? Welcome back to History's Hook. We return to our conversation with Radio Celebrity Blair Garner, Blair, you have nine Billboard Broadcast Awards, three Academy of Country Music On-Air Personality of the Year Awards in the national category. You've received four CMA nominations, a nomination for the prestigious Marconi Award, and you're a member of both the National Radio Hall of Fame and the Country Radio Hall of Fame. It's an impressive list. What are you most proud of in your radio career?
1: I'm proud that radio has allowed me to become a dad and to be just i think i i'm so grateful to everything that radio has allowed me but really what i'm most celebrating and all those recognitions are wonderful but they pale in comparison to the personal pride that i feel just about my family and uh i i, I think that's that's most appropriate really and truly my kids hmm.
0: talk about them a little bit can we talk about your yeah. Your private life.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: You're openly gay. Yeah. Uh, is my husband, Eric, over here. Eric, we're glad that you're you're with us as well. Your coming out publicly is probably one of the most difficult that I've ever heard about. Mm-hmm. It was essentially forced upon you as you were blackmailed. Yeah. Are you willing to tell us the story? Yeah, sure. Um, first of all,
1: I want everyone to know I fought it tooth and nail. I prayed every day, please don't let this be the way that it is. Uh, I felt such shame and such guilt and was fearful that I was going to be a a black mark on my family's name. And so much so that I recall vividly being in Los Angeles and driving down the 101 freeway right at the Barham exit. And there's this huge concrete uh, pilaster down Beneath the uh, overpass, and I really kind of thought I could just take care of all of this right now. I could, I could end it, and no one would ever know. And you know, I'd been engaged, and and uh, I did everything that I was supposed to do. And I'm not going to lie; that in that moment, it was really appealing. But as a Christian, I understand that, you know. We are all given the gift of, uh, we are all given the gift of, I believe in my heart that I was made the way that I was. It was no choice because I fought valiantly to choose otherwise. Um, But what that gift of being gay did, it gave me, Understanding of what it feels like to be marginalized and to be cast aside, um, because when you think about it, I had every reason to be an absolute jerk. Um, I'm. I was tall. I had a deeper voice. Um, you know, I was well read, thankfully, because of my parents. We we didn't live. We weren't rich by any measure, but we were not challenged. And I, I saw a lot of my peers use that, weaponize that against others that were marginalized. Mm-hmm. And because I knew firsthand what that felt like, I think it was it kind of leveled the playing field for me. Uh, I'm glad to say that that was the darkest point of it all. And when I finally shared the news with my parents, um, incredibly supportive, you know, the most that you could possibly want. and the blackmailing came about when we had started our syndication company after midnight, I had a guy that was a writer for the show and he was, he had had a really horrible upbringing upbringing and, um, there was, there was a lot of darkness surrounding him and I was the app, the absolute opposite of that trying to be, um, positive and you know always looking for the good and he hated that and it got to the point where he actually told me one time he said you know I fantasized driving into work about how I'm going to kill you wow and yeah that was a pretty sobering comment especially you know while I'm listening to Hal Catchem small town Saturday night playing on you know all across the country um and just just mean 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 and so I told my business partners you know um I said, look, this is just not a healthy environment because it's starting to affect, I think, some of the other people on our team. We had 33 employees at the time. And it was a cancer that, you know, just really was changing the overall feel of our business. So the guy that we had hired as the general manager was charged with separating from him and, you know, firing him. And when he came into his office, he said, you know, I thought that might be what you're going to talk to me about. Really interesting you should say that because, you know, I have a friend at USA Today. And I bet a lot of people would find that really amazing. That the host of a country radio show, you know, is is gay. And we had to, the, the, the people that had provided the venture capital to do this, I had to go to the I was crying I was just heartbroken and so ashamed and so upset I was feeling that I was letting the world down and they were wonderful about it but we had to cut a big check to get this guy to put that down you paid him yeah and I you know what I'm I feel horrible about that but there were a lot of people's lives on the line uh you know providing for their own families that were part of our enterprise so we did that and, and that was so i guess that was 94 and ultimately just about eight months ago i got a message on facebook from this guy and he said hey i wanted to let you know that i wrote something on my page about you and i thought that you should see it and to that day i still had this these feelings of you know like why would you do that i just wanted good for you I went to his page and he said, there have been a lot of things that I have done in my life, but there is one of which I am most ashamed. And that is that I did everything I could to tear down a very good man. Hmm. And he went on about that and saying how filled with regret he was. And when he wrote me personally, you know, he was kind of seeking my um, forgiveness. And I said, you are are so completely forgiven because what it was that caused you to come to this kind of Reconciliation in your own mind, I'm so grateful. And I only wish you the absolute best. And I'm hopeful that you can
0: find the kind of happiness that I've been lucky enough to enjoy. Must have caused a feeling of freedom for you, perhaps, even in that dark time.
1: In a way. But, you know, here's the thing even stuff like that, if you will effectively choose the way that you're going to look at it and react to it, you can funnel it toward good you can funnel it toward being a fuel and to me that fuel you know is what causes you to put effort into things that can can be a a positive influence in our world i worked for when i was in new york at abc i had a boss who i just did not understand him he he was perhaps one of the most difficult people i had ever known now i didn't find out until about five years ago at the time he was in the throes of a deep addiction, uh, to cocaine and drinking. And I call him telling me, he said, I like it when my, I like it when my staff fights, I want to fight. Hmm. And that was so completely the antithesis of my background. You can imagine with my mom, right. And things had gotten so bad at one point. I, I went to the general manager of the, of the business there at ABC. Well, the business ABC, uh, and I said, listen, this, this is just not working. I was in the middle of a three-year contract, only like eight months into a new three-year contract. And I said, Mitch, I just, I can't do this. Uh, and he said, well, you know, I understand that there are, there's conflict there. And he said, you know, we've talked to him. And the bottom line is he doesn't feel that he understands you. And I said, you know why he doesn't understand me? Because the things that motivate me in life are, are truth, integrity, honesty, doing the right thing when it doesn't even benefit you in the short term, doing the right thing when no one is looking. That really is the definition of character to me. And he said, I said, to me, those are my life virtues. To him, they are concepts and ones that he doesn't even understand. And it was that that disdain. He actually he said, well, okay, well, give me three more months. We're working with him. Put it on your calendar if you still want to go. I'll let you out of your contract. So man, I marked it down on my calendar. And the morning of that day, I walked into to Mitch's corner office and I said, Mitch, today's the day. He said, what do you mean? I said, you told me three months. Today is three months. I want out. And he did it. Hmm. Uh, but all of that heartache and that despair in those nine months of working for this one guy, just turned my world upside down, starting to turn me into someone that I didn't like. Uh, that became Fuel because that, I understood that, that when you work for other people, sometimes you don't know what impact that can have on who you are and your own mental happiness. So I used that fuel. That was what caused me to draw up the idea for After Midnight and then to spend the two years working on the business plan to get the capital together to do it. So again, it's about making a conscious choice in adversity to decide that, yes, I'm going to use this in a good way. Instead of, you know, staying down on the mat, I always say that really and truly, life will knock you down. I've been knocked down so many times, but the bottom line is I refuse to let that define me. What will define me is that I had the courage to get back up off that mat,
0: and we can all choose to do that. One of the statements that that person was making when he was thinking he was going to expose you to the world was that there is a gay country music radio host. That's almost a statement about country music. Country music and the country music community is generally a pretty conservative community of people. Mm -hmm. How difficult has it been?
1: Well, first and foremost, I'm not one who wears that on my sleeve. Uh, I don't often even speak about my personal life because I don't think it factors in. That is... Something about, um, you know, that it has no bearing, I think, on uh, my professional life at all. Uh, but I'm not going to shy away from it because I think that would even be worse. It's not fair to my husband. It's not
0: fair to my kids. But as a public person such as you are, people are going to, especially in this day and age of social media, they're going to express opinions. Oh, and,
1: and they do. and but, but what I'm hopeful of is that if people will allow themselves just that one little bit of opportunity to look at me and say... On the whole, who is this person? What is he about? Well, I'll tell you who I am and what I want. I want good. I want healing. I want understanding. I want integrity. I want truth. I want honesty. The fact is, the values by which I live my life are the exact same ones that the majority of those who may cast dispersions at me, they are the same values. I believe exactly what I saw the other night at Walmart here in Columbia over on James and Campbell. I saw a woman walking through the frozen, frozen food section that said, uh, the, the T-shirt that said, leave the judging to Jesus. As a Christian, that is a fundamental core value and it is not your place nor is it mine for either of us to assume that we have the ability to judge that is left to our Lord and Savior alone and if I feel good in my heart uh, I if I feel good in my heart about who I am and I know that my relationship with God is in the right place I I so appreciate that and I can't tell you what that what that feels like you know what it feels like in your heart when you are good with your Lord and I enjoy that feeling every single day. Now I understand that there's there are those who will say, "No, that's you literally cannot do that." Well, that may they, listen. Everyone is entitled to their opinion and, and worship the way that you choose. But ultimately, it is a one-on-one relationship. I believe with with God, and so that is how I see it. I know that I'm trying to put good into the world. I know that I'm trying to live my life according to the virtues that Jesus taught. And to, to reach out to those who are marginalized, to support those, you know, that, that's the one thing I, I don't believe. I, I disdain the fact that sometimes religion gets weaponized. And if you really go back and, and look at the way that Jesus led his life and reaching down to the impoverished, supporting those who were different and alone, that to me is the teaching. And That, to me, is the way that we all should aspire to live our lives. It doesn't mean you have to understand. It doesn't mean you have to support. But we all should allow the other the grace to not judge them. So, yes, I'm, I'm proud of that part of my life. The fact that radio allowed me to embark upon the road to being a father, I... The most difficult part to me of this whole thing was the fact that I was fearful that I would never become a father. But it was, you know, fortunately, success put me in a position where I could look into the world of surrogacy. I had, uh, it took me five and a half years as a single man, five and a half years, five embryo transfers, five egg donors, three surrogates, uh, more money. I mean, I literally began selling everything that I had to, to fund this dream. When my mom died in 94 and she was adopted, I had every reason to pursue adoption, but I needed to look my child in the eye and see my mom looking back through her eyes. And when I look at my daughter, Ava, that is exactly what I see.
0: You're the father of twins. Yeah. What are your hopes for them?
1: That regardless of whatever their chosen path is, that it's fulfilling, and that they find joy, and that they spread, that they be a light in their community, uh, a beacon of um, understanding and of hope and of dreams. Um, a lot of people say that I'm really soft, and I am, and I'm I'm not afraid of that. I don't I don't shy away from that. I, I really and truly want for every single person who is listening right now, I, I, the God's honest truth is I want you to find joy. I want you to feel happiness. I want you to feel right in your heart. I don't know how else to to explain that. I, I've always told my kids that, that I don't know what they're going to do, but it is going to be big, and especially like my son Brax. I know that he is going to be one who, Will somehow lead the charge of of bringing together people in some way, shape, or form, and I believe that Ava's is probably the same. Mm. Uh, she, she actually
0: can make a really good lawyer. she's
1: very good at arguing Friends in the family, <laughs> I guess it does yeah
0: <laughs> let's talk about your newest venture, the mule house, a state of the art music venue. You've acquired the former First Baptist Church in downtown Columbia, mm-hmm. something of a historic building. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're partaking in historic preservation, which mm-hmm. is is wonderful for this community, especially Columbia is blessed with some incredible architecture that remains. What's your vision for the business?
1: Well, you know, it's all, again, the the fo- foundational component is community. And it's something that will allow, I'm hopeful, um, the opportunity to bring a spotlight to Columbia. Um, I, I, I often say that, you know, there are different phases of our build out first and foremost is the venue itself and the concert series. Um, when, when COVID hit and we began seeing this impact on live event spaces and how detrimental it was, I mean, live nation year over year, their business model was down 95%. That's remarkable. Most businesses can't, well, how could they survive in that environment? Uh, but again, as I said earlier about looking through the disruption, trying to clear the smoke and look for the open window, for me and for us, that was the live stream aspect of it. We initially had that built into our plan, but we didn't lean on it as any kind of a real line of revenue uh, because we were fearful that how are you going to educate consumers the fact that they can find entertainment through a live streamed event? So we just kind of put that aside. You know, it was like, it'll be a component of, about what we're doing, but really it's all about ticket sales. So when, when COVID hit and people were uh, sequestering themselves to their home, you know, it was one of those situations where the, the desire to consume entertainment, that did not change. That has always been there. What it did in fact do was cause people to find different ways to meet that need and that's what gave birth to the whole Couch Concert series. And at first it was tremendous. You could see Erica, Eric, what's her name, Erica Badu, I mm-hmm. think, uh, down in Dallas, doing uh, events from her home. And, you know, it was really charming. And, and, but it, it all began to kind of get back to that. It was, it was not well produced. It wasn't, you know, didn't sound good necessarily or anything like that. We were fortunate enough to be working with a company that allows us to really define ourselves as the first venue in America dedicated to a build out of being the world, um, pinnacle really of live streaming events. It's it's incredible what you can do. We can have an artist on stage at the mule house and someone can be watching and listening in Denmark and, the, the amount of time that it takes from what happens here in historic Columbia, Tennessee on the stage of the Mule House to reach that end user in Denmark is 0.3 seconds. That's it. And we can then also take their reaction when, when an artist performs a song and it's over there they are in Denmark, you know, they, they start clapping, and that all gets funneled into the feedback that the artist gets. Now, this is not to say they're not going to be live-seated guests, because you absolutely will have that, especially I want to make sure the people of Columbia are able to come and, and take part in that. Uh, but you, you marry those two things together, and it's remarkable. Now, instead of having a 500-person capacity venue, which in, you know, hard bodies, that's what it would be for a seated event, now you're talking about a global audience, Right. And it was in that moment that we pivoted. We had just finished the interior demolition of the building and we were beginning to frame out everything for the, the, the venue, but we took that pause. I am I'm not going to lie. When, when we realized the weight of COVID and what that was doing, there were two days of absolute freak out because it's like, you, you know, we're already pregnant, right? We got to see this through. And that's what we did. We we stepped back and we said, "Okay, there's got to be an open window. Let's identify it." And in our situation, it was exactly that. The fact that we will now be able to put Columbia, Tennessee on the map for the world and to always identify it as historic Columbia, Tennessee and to show the beauty of this town. This is as close as I have ever seen to a Norman Rockwell town and and to get people worldwide to know this community, the people that embody everything that we are, that is a magic opportunity, you know? So we're really very grateful for that. That's
0: that's the vision as of now. And what's, what's fascinating to me too, through this, the timing seems terrible, but on the other hand, people, everybody of all ages are becoming adept at taking in, consuming yeah. all manner of things, entertainment, uh, education, through online venues so this is really just playing into maybe the timing is perfect
1: well again as i said i've always felt there's a divine hand guiding this whole thing and you know it's just the the fact that that we live here in columbia tennessee the fact that what's going on here in this town is just not being replicated elsewhere in the same way um i i consider myself the most blessed fortunate and and most of all grateful
0: man to be doing this here you have amazing contacts within the country music scene uh what are some of the acts that you foresee coming to columbia tennessee well you know i've again gratitude and blessed that's a big
1: part of you know what i feel and during the course of my years in radio i've been lucky enough to forge meaningful relationships with Pretty much the majority of anyone you can think of, all the way from you know Garth and Reba to uh, Luke Combs to to Keith Keith Urban's one of my just I would say he's probably my closest friend within the community of celebrity. Uh, Reba as well. I would love to welcome them on stage. I you know with respect to there I can say that we have um, probably nine or ten significant acts that have already verbally committed. I think it would be premature for me to share on air. But, um, we are talking about multi-platinum award-winning groups and there will be a different breakout of series all the way from those A-level artists, the, the biggest of the big through to the icons, you know, the, the Tracy birds, Mark chestnuts, uh, Winona, those kinds of acts. And then also the, the ground floor series, which is going to be an opportunity for a newer act to introduce themselves to their, uh, a new potential fan base, uh, we talked about the need for people to find um, these opportunities to consume entertainment in a different way. There is also a real need within the record community to begin establishing relationships with artists and and program directors at radio stations across the country, but. It is. It has become problematic for them, and the cost of sending an artist out on a radio tour across the nation is significant. They say that, on general, it, it is in at well in excess of a million dollars just to break a new artist. By the time you hear that first single, they're already a million dollars in. So, what we can do is we can welcome the newer artist here to the stage of the Mule House we can connect them through this live stream with radio program directors across the country, across the world, uh, and effectively still meet that need. Same thing with the launch of a new album. Um, All of those are opportunities, but it's important to remember it is all emanating from the mule house in historic Columbia, Tennessee. This is our town, and we intend to shine the light as brightly and as proudly as we possibly can.
0: So the mule house is going to be an absolute game changer for Columbia. I think it has the potential to be a game changer for the country music industry in general. I I think it's an amazing idea. It's an amazing concept.
1: I also want to add not specifically just country. I'm, I well imagine. I, you know what I would love. I would love to have Motley Crue come and do a show. Seriously. (laughs) My son would die for that. Uh, but, but all acts, you know, and, and it's all genres. Um, uh, and I, I I just quickly want to say that, that music is healing. Music has a way of causing us all to lay our baggage at the side. We may not agree politically. We may not know each other uh, because of racial division or whatever it is. But in that moment that music transforms people... That is what I find just amazing. And I think that through, through some of the events that we can put on stage, we can get people back to a place of mutual respect, of understanding
0: just basic humanity. What's the projected opening date?
1: We are anticipating construction to draw to a close late March. Uh, our hope is that the first ticketed event will be mid April. That's, you know, again, everyone please say a prayer. <laughs> You know, we hope that Mother Nature complies and gives us her blessing. And, you know,
0: amazing. Thank you. Blair Garner, thank you so much for spending an hour with us here in your adopted hometown. We're proud to have you, uh, a member of the Columbia community. Thank you for being on History's Hook. If good I luck may, with the Mule House.
1: May I throw out one more thing? And yeah. that is uh, we have launched a YouTube series called From Dream to Reality The Making of the Mule House. If you'll go to YouTube and simply do a search on the Mule House, you'll see ultimately there will be 10 different episodes of this. Uh, please follow us online. Uh, if you can go to themulehouse.com, you can find info there. Also, you can follow us on socials at The Mule House. Um, and, and the the final thought that I would wish to to leave everyone with is that deep down inside of you, there is a dream. And it may be a dream that you've long forgotten. Life has a way of stripping us of hope. I want you to just give yourself the gift of Five minutes at some point today just to close your eyes and reconnect. Seriously think about what it is that fuels your passion in life. And then I want you to think and and accept the fact that deep inside of you is the ability to make that dream a reality. Like I tell my kids, if you work hard, if you treat people kindly, you can do this. You will be surprised by how people will rally around you and admire you. You have that gift deep down inside of you, and it's now your burden to bring that out to the world to see, for them to stand back and say, wow, I didn't know they could do that. Because you can, and you should, and you owe it to yourself. Tom, thank you very much. I'm sorry, I tend to get a little... uh,
0: Thank you. Thank yeah. you for your time oh, today. Yeah. Thank it, you for your words of wisdom. It, you're very kind. Much, thank you, much you so much. Much appreciated. Also, thank you to our sponsor, Servpro of Murray and Giles County for their support. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week as we connect the history in our own backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook.